You're listening to Fence Posts, Foundations for the Christian Life. Fence Posts is a teaching ministry of Pastor Mike Woodruff of Christ Church Lake Forest. He is not like you. Ultimate reality is made up of two parts, God and that which he created. This collection of studies is about God himself. More specifically, it's about who he is and how we can know and enjoy him. In the first study, we established our need for a relationship with God and identified a few of the barriers that prevent that. In the second study, we looked at God's triune nature and explored ways we can engage him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this study, we're going to focus on the ways he is not like us, doing so in order to know him more completely. Theologians often divide God's attributes into two groups, communicable and incommunicable. The first list includes those qualities we also embody, however imperfectly, such as grace, holiness, and love. The second contains the attributes that make him utterly unique, such as his aseity, eternality, omnipresence, and immutability. I'll define these terms as we go along. In study number four, God is good, and study number five, God is great, we will consider God's communicable attributes. In this study, we're going to focus on his incommunicable qualities. We will begin with aseity, but before we do, let me adjust your expectations in two ways. The material coming your way is likely to be new and certain to be mind-bending. It's my guess that aseity is not one of the words you would currently use to describe God. In fact, it's my guess that you have never heard the word before. For that matter, you're probably not feeling particularly confident about immutability either. That's okay. I'm not assuming that you know these terms, only that you need to. The truths about God that lie behind these obscure terms should not remain the private joy of theologians. Each of them reflects an aspect of God's nature that is glorious beyond our comprehension. However, you're going to have to stretch a bit to make sense of them, because this is one situation in which the cookies are not on the bottom shelf. The concepts in this study are probably the most difficult we will take on in any fence post lesson. I'll do my best to explain things as simply as I know how, but these are heady truths. On more than one occasion, your eyes will likely glaze over. That's okay. At that point, I'll be thrilled if you'll do just three things. First, remind yourself that finitum non capex infinity. As John Calvin wrote, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. Our insight will only ever carry us so far. There are some limitations we simply must accept. Secondly, remind yourself of the goal. We're not trying to learn about God. Our goal is to know him. To that end, we learn all we can so that we can love, honor, and obey. And third, keep reading. Aseity, God's utter independence. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Romans 11. In God there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. C.S. Lewis. Daddy, who made me? Your mommy and I did. You grew in her tummy just like your baby brother. But who made mommy? Her mommy and daddy did, grandma and grandpa. She grew in her mommy's tummy. Then who made them? Their parents, your great-grandparents did. It goes all the way back to God. Daddy, who made God? I work with adults because they seldom ask such difficult questions. 
However, having had kids of my own, I've been in this conversation myself. What is the right answer? I mean, other than, I don't know, go ask your mother. You have four options. Option A, no one made God, he simply evolved. Richard Dawkins, recently famous for his attacks on Christianity, admits that a God may exist, but insists that if he, she, or it does, he has climbed out of the same primordial soup he believes we emerged from. In other words, if a God exists, he is a strictly physical being who is simply a few rungs higher on the evolutionary ladder than the rest of us. Option B, God made himself. The second view, unwittingly advocated by some well-intentioned but misinformed Christians, is that God made himself. This option has the advantage of sounding pious, but that is about all it has in its favor. In truth, the idea of self-generation is not only contrary to the biblical record, which claims that God is eternal, it is philosophical nonsense. In order for something to create itself, it would have to pull itself into existence before it had anything to pull with. It would have to be before it is. This cannot happen. Nothing cannot create something. Nothing ever has and nothing ever will. Option C. The current God was created by an earlier God. A small group of people embrace a third option, that of infinite regression. Those in this camp argue that an earlier God, who was in turn made by a still earlier God, made the current God. And back and back the cycle goes ad infinitum. As with option B, this idea violates the biblical claim that God is eternal. Once again, it attempts to solve the problem in ways that are ultimately nonsensical. We need a first cause. Those who choose option C are like students who hope to get full credit for an essay question just because they elaborately restated the question. Ultimately, infinite regression fails because it fails to establish a first cause. Option D. Who made God? No one. God is eternal. The fourth and I believe correct answer to our question is that no one made God because God was not made. He has always existed. In this statement, I am making two claims. First, that God is eternal. And second, that God is an entirely independent and self-sufficient being. We will deal with point one in just a few pages. Right now, I would like to turn our attention to God's utter independence, a concept theologians refer to as his aseity. A simple definition. The word aseity, which comes from the Latin words asse, of oneself, means that God is entirely independent and self-sustaining. He is neither defined by nor dependent upon anything outside of himself. Though we and the rest of creation bring him joy, he does not need us or anything else for any reason. Think of God's aseity as his self-sufficiency in every conceivable sense. In fact, aseity goes beyond self-sufficiency to self-existence. You and I, and everything other than God, are an effect. That is, we were caused by something else. God is not an effect. He is simply a cause. The first cause, or the only uncaused cause on record. He never has needed anyone or anything for any reason. Not even to come into existence. He has life in himself and will always be able to draw on his own unending energy. The Bible speaks to this quality in the Exodus 3 passage we looked at in the first study. There, God reveals his name as I Am, which speaks of his self-defining nature. 
Scripture also alludes to his aseity in both John 5, where Jesus states, the Father has life in himself, and in Romans 11, where Paul rhetorically asks whether God has ever owed anyone anything. The clearest statement of his aseity, however, is found in Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, where Paul explains to the Athenians that God is entirely different from the idols they're worshiping. Quote, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. The Bible teaches that God does not need anything outside of himself. He is complete ase. What this means. What can we learn about God from this doctrine? Why should we care? I believe there are at least four things worth contemplating. First, aseity means that God gives, but he does not take. Because there is nothing lacking in him that would ever drive him to look outside of himself, God does not gain from our worship, depend on our love, need our friendship, or require our help. If he were improved by us in some way, that addition would be the measure of his imperfection. Therefore, God does not take anything from us. In fact, as counterintuitive as this may seem, we are the ones who benefit from worshiping him. He is already complete before our worship, whereas we are only truly complete when we are in communion with him. Number two, Aseity means that everything is dependent upon God, who alone is independent. If you took the entire universe away from God, he would not be diminished in any way, for while he is absolutely necessary for the universe to exist, the universe is not necessary for his perfection, completeness, or even existence. The universe is vast beyond our comprehension, but small compared to God's glory. It depends upon him. He depends upon nothing other than himself. Number three, aseity means that God was under no obligation to create anything or anyone. God's aseity means that his decision to create was an act of his sovereign will alone. No higher being or idea compelled him in any way. Finally, Aseity means that he is qualitatively different from every other person and thing. The difference between God and us is greater than the difference between a candle in the sun or a raindrop in the ocean. God is not just quantitatively bigger, he is qualitatively different. He is not only without needs, he cannot have any needs, for that is not the kind of being he is. God is infinitely better and stronger than we are in ways our finite minds cannot begin to grasp. And yet, the Bible tells us that we bring him joy. Scripture often reveals a glorious nuance in God's nature that makes an already amazing attribute even more remarkable. So far, we've established that God is utterly independent and self-sufficient, that he does not lack for any possible thing. The remarkable truth is that in spite of his independence, God takes joy in our lives. He is not the distant deity of the deists. His aseity does not leave him detached nor render us without value. He chose to give us meaning by making us in his image and taking a personal interest in us. Let me state this differently. Though God is infinite, holy, all-powerful, and eternal, though his glory eclipses that of the universe, and though you cannot give him anything he needs, 
He has taken a personal interest in you. He created you in his image and made you for a relationship with him. This connection to God is the basis of your ultimate value. To be significant to him means you're significant in the ultimate sense. Eternity. God's reign over time. Quote from Psalm 90. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And quote from the book of Jude. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. There's a chorus of verses that declare the eternality of God. The idea that God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being. Some of these passages state his infinity with respect to time quite directly, such as those that tell us that he is, quote, from everlasting to everlasting. His number of years is unsearchable, or that he existed before all time. Others make the point more indirectly, explaining that he created everything, which means he pre-existed matter and space and thus time itself. Though it's hard to fully grasp just what eternity is, especially that which is called eternity a parte ante, the Bible makes it quite clear that the Ancient of Days is eternal in his essence and attributes. He faces no limitations with respect to time. He has no beginning nor end. He is, always has been, and always will be the great I Am. Why is this important? What are the ramifications of God's eternal nature? How might it affect us? Why should we care? I'd like to suggest that there are at least three reasons. First, it suggests that God can see the beginning from the end. It's hard for us to understand God's relationship to time because it's so different from ours. However, it might help to think about our differing perspectives as two different vantage points at a parade. We, limited as we are, have curbside seats along the route. From our location, we can watch the marching bands, smiling politicians, and beauty queens as they pass by. God's perspective, however, comes from a blimp overhead. This allows him to see the entire parade as it moves along the route. His view is not limited as ours is. He can look at the beginning and the end at the same time. Second, It suggests that God can see all things with perfect clarity. In Psalm 90, we're told that for the Lord, a thousand days are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. In 2 Peter 3, the apostle speaks from the opposite perspective, writing, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. These two passages, which both use the thousand years as a figure of speech, imply that God is fully engaged with the events that are before him and that all events are fully before him. He can look at the beginning and the end at the same time while seeing the parade curbside as well. The psalm passage indicates that he can remember what happened during the Middle Ages even better than I can remember what I did two hours ago. And Peter's remarks suggest that the present scrolls past him in super slow motion. No details are missed. These two passages set side by side, indicate that the entire span of history is vividly clear to God. No events fade from his consciousness. God sees and knows all events with equal clarity. 
Third, it supports the promise that though Christ, that through Christ we gain eternal life. It has been suggested that you can't give what you do not have any more than you can come back from a place you've never been. To that end, it's reassuring to know that God is eternal. It adds credence to his promise to give his children eternal life. God's eternality affirms how fundamentally different he is from us. Nothing we touch, taste, listen to, or gaze upon is eternal. The sun will burn out, oil wells will dry up, plants and animals all die, some species even become extinct. Everything other than God is decaying. He is the lone exception. His eternal nature offers him a perspective no other thing enjoys and allows him to share eternal life with his children. Omnipresence. God is everywhere and beyond. A quote from King David, Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. A second quote from C.S. Lewis. We may ignore but nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. A few years ago, I knocked on the door of the house I lived in until I was eight years old. The couple who owned it kindly welcomed me in and invited me to look around. I was shocked. If you've gone back to a former home or visited one of your grade school classrooms, you know exactly what I was wondering. Who shrunk our house? I could not believe how tiny the rooms were. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis tells of a reunion between Lucy and Aslan, the Christ figure of the story. Lucy's been away from Aslan for some time. Upon seeing him, she has the opposite experience I reported with my house. Aslan, you're bigger, she says. That is because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. The third incommunicable attribute we need to consider is God's omnipresence, which teaches us that God is not only bigger than time, he is also bigger than space. A simple definition. God's omnipresence, from the Latin omni, which means all, refers to the boundless plenitude of his being. It highlights the idea that he is unhindered by any spatial constraints and is fully present at every point of creation. All things are immediately in his presence. This profound truth is developed in numerous passages, such as Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord? Am I not far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? Also, Matthew 28, 19. And he, Jesus, promised them, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. God's Omnipresence is also revealed in the name Emmanuel, the Hebrew name that means God with us, a designation ultimately fulfilled in Christ. There is no place in the entire creation, on land or sea, in heaven or hell, where God is not fully present. In fact, God exists even where space does not. What this means. 
The implications of God's omnipresence are fourfold. It means that God is not subject to the limitations of humanity or creation. While there are things God cannot do, such as create a round square or violate his own character, he is infinitely greater than we are. I cannot be in even two places at once. God can and is present everywhere at every moment. Second, God does not have spatial dimensions. As we noted earlier, the Bible teaches us that God is spirit. Among the several things this suggests is the idea that he cannot be contained by space itself. Solomon makes this point as clearly as anyone does when he prays, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Third, God is imminent. In an earlier study, we celebrated God's transcendence. That is, the fact that he exists above and beyond his creation. The doctrine of omnipresence highlights the opposite truth, God's imminence. This is the doctrine that teaches that he is next to us. Deists believe in a God who is transcendent but not imminent. Pantheists believe in a God who is imminent but not transcendent. The great I am is both. The God who is over all things and present everywhere in the universe is fully present and intimately concerned with you. Finally, it means that we cannot hide from God. In the book of Jonah, we watch as the prophet tries to avoid God's command to preach to the Assyrian people. He rightly feared that if he warned the Assyrians about God's displeasure with the choices they were making, that they would repent and God would spare them. In an effort to avoid this, Jonah fled in the opposite direction. In fact, he left land and took to the sea. But there he learned a lesson for all of us. You cannot escape from the presence of God. No matter where you go, he is there. Proverbs 5.21 states this very succinctly. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. For those who have tasted the sweetness of forgiveness, this is good news. However, for others, it's a source of unending concern. Who wants to hear that you cannot escape from your pursuer? But wait, doesn't the Bible talk about our sin keeping God far away from us? Yes, there are several passages that suggest that God is removed from us because of our sin. Isaiah 59.2 reads, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And Proverbs 15.29 states, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. How can the Lord be near if he is far from us? Don't these passages suggest that there are limits on God's omnipresence? No. As in some of the other situations we have already looked at, these challenges grow out of the limitations of human speech. The passages listed above do not mean that God is not present in any way, but that he is not present to bless us. Our sin has created a barrier, but the barrier refers to our communion with him, not his omnipresence. The Bible teaches us that God is boundless. He is not limited by time or space. He is, quote, a circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere, end of quote. The entire universe cannot contain God. He transcends it. Even more remarkably, those who have embraced Christ as Lord have been promised that God not only exists beside us, but he indwells our hearts as well. God is always fully available to you. You do not have to wait in line. 
You do not have to worry that he stepped away. His immensity means that he is fully present for you wherever you are. Immutability, the changelessness of God. A quote from James 1. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And a second quote from Malachi 3. I, the Lord, do not change. When Lloyd Douglas was a university student, he bunked on the second floor of a boarding house. Below him lived a retired music teacher whose poor health did not allow him to leave his apartment. Douglas said that every morning the two of them would go through the same ritual. Douglas would come down the steps open the old man's door and ask, Well, what's the good news? The old man would pick up his tuning fork, tap it on the side of his wheelchair and say, That's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But that, my friend, is middle C. In a world so transitory that Heraclitus stated, a man cannot stick his toe in the same river twice. The retired musician found stability in the one thing he knew would not waver. Middle C. Our quest to understand God's character brings us to something more permanent and stable than Middle C. God himself, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A simple definition. Theologians refer to God's unchangeableness as his immutability. That is, his inability to mutate. By this they mean he is unchanging in his essence, attributes, purposes, and promises. Scripture affirms this idea in several places, such as James 1.17, where we read, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And also in Psalm 102.25, The writer contrasts God's unchangeableness with the fleeting nature of earth, stating, You, God, remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. It should not surprise us to learn that God is immutable, for He is also perfect, and the two go together. After all, if God changed, it would either be for the better or the worse. If it were for the better... In other words, if he grew in righteousness or gained new insights, that would mean that he had not previously been perfect. Therefore, the only possible change would be for the worse. And if he is truly perfect, then he's not going to move in that direction either. What this means. You may not have thought much about the stability of God's nature before, but it is an attribute with two very profound implications. First, it means that we have a fixed point in a world of uncertainty. I'm changing, so are you, so is the neighborhood, city, and country where you live. In fact, the universe, in all its constituent parts, is changing. It's either slowing down, burning up, or fading out. God is the lone exception. Everything other than Him is in a state of flux. He alone is steady and true. His will is invariable, and His purposes are sure. He is, quote, a fixed point of certainty in the middle of a churning and decaying universe. Secondly, God's immutability means that we can take him at his word. Try to imagine how difficult it would be to place your trust in God if he were subject to change. That is, if his essence, attributes, purposes, or promises were up for grabs. What if he eventually decided to not be loving, or he suddenly chose to be less than wholly good, 
The implications are terrifying. In order to trust him, he must be trustworthy. Moreover, in order to be trustworthy, he must be stable. This is what he is. God's immutability means that he is utterly faithful. His laws, principles, and commands are timeless. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. He can be counted on even when no one else can be. But wait, does God's immutability mean that he is unable to feel pain or joy? About 2,500 years ago, Plato argued that because God was perfect, he was necessarily immutable, and because he was immutable, he must also be impassable. That is, he could not be affected by anything in any way. As a result, the Greek idea of God at this time was an impersonal force safely disinterested in mankind and far removed from any requests for help or cries for mercy. Of course, this is hardly the picture we are given in the Bible. Instead, there we find a God who, although he is immutable, is full of compassion, embraces joy, expresses anger, and is fully engaged with the universe he created. God is not a beautiful pose forever frozen. He acts and feels differently in response to different situations. God's immutability means that we can be assured of his moral constancy and unwavering faithfulness. We can be certain that even though he is always in action and there is always change around him, God will not change, waver, or break his promises. Okay, but doesn't God change from the Old Testament to the New? No. A second century heretic by the name of Marcion championed the claim that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two different gods. Moreover, some people, arguing from a similar set of assumptions, have suggested that the God of the Old Testament is harsh and capricious, while the God of the New Testament is kind and loving. However, almost no one who studies the book reaches this conclusion. Quite the opposite, those who read the Old Testament are often struck by how exceedingly patient God is. Conversely, Those who get around to reading the New Testament are often shocked by the kinds of demands Christ sets before them. Third question, what about the passages that imply that God changes his mind? Exodus 32.14 states that the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. In Jonah 3.10 we read that, quote, he relented concerning the calamity which he declared he would bring, end of quote, upon the people of Nineveh. In 1 Samuel 15, the Lord even said, I regret that I made Saul king. If God does not change, what are we supposed to make of the passages which suggest he changed or relented or regretted? Well, in each of these passages, the Hebrew term that is used is naham, and that term attributes a human response to God. From our limited perspective, it may appear as though God's purposes have changed or that he has repented, But this is not what has actually happened within God. The key to these verses is the changes brought about by the people. They change their actions, and as a result, they find a different response from God. This does not reflect any inconsistency on God's part, however. Quite the opposite. Just as loving and consistent parents discipline their children when they're disobedient and praise them for doing what is right, God's response to people who change is different. He withholds judgment from people who repent. In this, he is not actually changing his mind or purposes. He is simply responding to repentance with grace and mercy. A final question. Is God's immutability a good thing? The final question for us to ask is, is God's immutability a good thing for us or not? 
Well, that depends. Like his omnipresence, God's immutability can be reassuring or horrifying. To those who are rebelling against him, the idea that he is eternally unchanging is not good news. In fact, it's the worst news they could hear because their hope is that God will either change his mind or fade away. For those who know and love God, the news that he is forever faithful and unchanging is wonderfully reassuring. It means that he can be counted on to deliver his wonderful and gracious promises. A.W. Tozer writes about this in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy. What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from Himself. In coming to Him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find Him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to misery and need, as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours nor set aside periods when He will not see anyone. Neither does He change His mind about anything. Today, this moment, He feels towards His creatures, towards babies, towards the sick, the fallen, the sinful exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. God never changes his moods, cools off in his affections, or loses his enthusiasm. Some closing comments. Of course, there is much more that could be said. Indeed, I have not even developed the idea of God's simplicity, which many people include in their list of his incommunicable attributes. It describes God's unified nature, which means that his love is never in competition with his justice, nor does he have to cease being just in order to be merciful. But I suspect that I've gone far enough. We could spend a lifetime learning about any one of the four qualities we briefly considered. Suffice it to say, God is fundamentally different than we are. He is not just bigger, stronger, and wiser. He is gloriously different. Let me encourage you to marvel in these differences, to thank God for his aseity, eternality, omnipresence, and immutability. Remember, our goal is not to know about God. It is to know him and to worship him in spirit and in truth. If there's any way we can help you on your spiritual journey, please contact us at cclf.org or email us at fenceposts at cclf.org.